0: Gedanken sind frei, er kann sie erraten. Sie rauschen vorbei wie nächtliche Schatten. Ein Mensch kann sie wissen, ein Jäger sie schießen. Es bleibt dabei, es bleibt dabei. Die Gedanken sind frei.
1: welcome to another episode of the desires podcast coming to you now from quarantine uh how are you surviving these times father
2: uh, actually pretty well I'm talking about the weather with lonely prisoners on the telephone mostly but <laughs> otherwise fine lots of uh, lots of appointments have been canceled so in a way it's you know uh,
1: for for me, it's uh, stuck inside with four kids who, you know, you kick outside and then they all come back inside. And then they come in and they want your attention and stuff. Almost like you're their parent. It's, it's uh, outrageous.
2: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but it's... it's imprisoned. Uh, yeah, you...
1: <laughs> <laughs> imprisoned. Speaking of imprisonment, can you tell us a little bit about that Mahler uh, we were just
2: listening to? Yes. So this is... Um, Lied des Verfolgten im um, Turm, and Mahler uses the text here of a, of a popular 19th century song, Die Gedanken sind frei, thoughts are free, um, and puts them in the mouth of a, of a man in prison in a tower. And if they lock me up in a dark dungeon, it is all only in vain. That they try, for my thoughts rip apart the barriers and break the walls into thoughts are free. Um, <laughs> this is kind of an anthem of, of 19th century German liberalism. And it's still sung um, in German student fraternities, including my student fraternity, with, with a, different, a different melody, not the Mahler melody. But, um, so are German student fraternities like American fraternities? What, what, what? I've never been to an American fraternity, so I <laughs> don't really have the frame of reference there. But German student fraternities are very German. <laughs> 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 I can't imagine them being in any Drinking, other Drinking,
1: funny hats. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, little... were,
2: we were, the officers wear 19th century uh, cavalry uniforms. and also oh, Everyone wonderful. else <laughs> wears sort of, hats and, and a sash. And there's elaborate beer drinking ceremonies, um, and, and lots of singing.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, so I, I should have said. So uh, I, I guess the the tie-in here is that we're talking about uh, sort of liberalism, particularly with a focus on Leo the Thirteenth's great encyclical on the topic, uh, Libertas uh, Christentissimum, Indeed. and uh, you know the. Uh, his view of liberty is so different from the modern view. Uh, and I wondered, uh, how do you want to go about it? Do you want to talk about the modern first and then go to the classical view that he defends so eloquently? or Maybe, uh,
2: maybe we'll begin this time with the following the his own procedure the here in this encyclical because he first lays out his own view of liberty or freedom, and then uh, in the second part of the Encyclical he turns to the liberals, those have usurped the noble name of liberty for their <laughs> evil uh, undertakings this is an
1: in my opinion an underread encyclical because there's so many things that so many people just assume are the case, even even uh Catholics or faithful Catholics go to mass every Sunday that he just utterly refutes in like pretty <laughs> pretty uh <laughs> Let language to <laughs> yeah it's speak part of his colloquially
2: his whole approach to um, to s- Catholic social teaching Leo the thirteenth tries to formulate a more systematic response to modern ideology than his predecessors his predecessors had been uh, beginning already with Benedict the fourteenth um, in the age of enlightenment, they had they had been condemning all these ideas in various ways, uh, and been struggling against the liberals as they rose in the eighteenth and then especially the nineteenth century, Pius the Sixth and so on. Traces talks about the false philosophical idea of liberty. Yeah. But Leo the Thirteenth tries to give a more systematic uh refutation. Uh and for for those purposes he he turns to Saint Thomas Aquinas. One of his first encyclicals is, of course, um, Etani Patris on, the, on Christian philosophy, where he calls for a revival of Thomism as the answer to the ills of the age. <laughs> it's so beautiful
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry sorry SCOTUS SCOTUS don't read <laughs> well and not just not just I mean uh, SCOTUS are, are one thing there's you know all ten of them We, I wish you well uh, the, uh, the the real problem is all the people who think that the real answer is you know all these all these modern come Johnny come lately folks Kant and Kierkegaard and et cetera et cetera um so he, his first thing he does almost is sort of to divide liberty into uh, natural and moral, right? Right. So maybe you can say what's the what's the difference, and what is? It? Maybe just say what's natural liberty first. Yeah. So
2: natural liberty is the what we call the freedom of the will, which is founded on reason. It's um, because man. He contrasts man here with irrational animals. Irrational animals are moved by instinct. They have a a sense perception, and then that arouses uh, a passion in them at the sensitive level, and then they instinctively um, act according to that impression. But man has a faculty that transcends the sense impressions, namely reason, which gives him a universal knowledge. So he can deliberate about the means to achieving his end he can see different uh possibilities uh whereby he might become happy man can deliberate about you know whether he should become a butcher or a baker or a philosopher um, and weigh the pros and cons and so on in an abstract way that's the faculty of reason and make a judgment about it and then uh then choose one of those means towards his happiness. So liberty
1: for him is then, in terms of natural freedom, is all about the choice of means to get to some end. And the end is sort of fixed. We don't have a choice whether we want to be happy or not. Everyone wants to be happy. Uh, The choice is about means and how to become happy. Exactly. And we're sort of... the reason that it uh, has to be an intellectual being or, or an immaterial being that has liberty in the strict sense is because uh, we have the ability to choose without uh, compulsion from instinct or nature or whatever. We actually can think about it and pick one or the other
2: at, uh, and and so, in a sense, be our own cause. Yeah, exactly. The, the sense powers that we share with the animals— um, are all tied to a material organ. So they're all particular. They all have to do with a particular sensation. And some of the higher animals have a kind of what what Thomas would call a estimative power, a vis estimativa, right. where they can sort of compare one impression with, with memories of others and so on and have something that sort of is vaguely analogous to deliberation but only man because he has a power that's not tied to a bodily organ namely reason an immaterial power um, is able to deliberate uh, at a universal level and that's what makes his choice free
1: and even there like a lot of what we do is sort of the calculation that animals do like if you're looking at a car and saying hmm can I cross the street or not you're doing that that's not usually at the level of like rational calculation.
2: There's a lot of right. uh, animal actions right. have, going on there. We have what St. Thomas calls the vis cogitativa, which is uh, a sense power that's similar to the animal's uh, power of estimation, the power of cogitation in us, which is not a rational power. But uh, it's, in us, it's, of course, affected by reason and, and sort right. of ordered right. to reason.
1: As are our sense, as are many of our, I mean, uh, our sense powers. That's why they're called moral is because they they are ruled, as Aristotle put it. Uh, uh, they're ruled by the reason with a political rule rather than a uh, uh, tyrannous rule or like a master that rules a slave. So that's that's natural freedom then, right?
2: Yeah. When, and one other point that he emphasizes there on natural freedom is that— uh, the object of the will is always the good um right. so you always have to whenever you make a judgment uh, about the means to your happiness you always have to judge them as good that is as tending towards your final end so even when you're deceived as he says by the false appearance of good um it always has there's always a judgment this is good Involved when you choose something So I can't choose something evil because it's evil But only right. because I see it as good Even if it's not
1: Right, so there has to be uh, When we make a mistake It's either a mistake in the intellect or the will uh, But nonetheless There's an appearance at least There is some Something is good at least in some sense And we we substitute that for the Actual good for us
2: Yeah, I'm, I've been teaching a class on Catholic Social Teaching this semester, which now unfortunately has gone online, it's a pain in the neck. But <laughs> <laughs> but we were we earlier before the the virus uh, <laughs> prevented us from having in person meetings. We had a class on Libertas presentissimum and um, we were talking about this that everything has to be chosen as uh, under the ratio of good of goodness, and someone objected to that saying well doesn't that sort of destroy responsibility for sin because every time you do something you're doing it because you think it's good (laughs) well uh
1: there's there's first of all a lot of the a lot of the uh errors are for humans are errors of the will but uh, the angels fell without making i'm sorry a lot of the errors for humans are errors of the intellect so we just we make mistakes. Uh the angels fell without even making an intellectual error. Yeah. But that may be getting uh but, getting I mean, too far afield.
2: This this goes back in a way to the the kind of um puzzling position that Socrates seems to um seems to be advocating in the Platonic dialogues. So of course Socrates is yeah. always speaking ironically, so it's not really uh possible to tell whether it's what he actually thinks or not but he says you know basically he seems to lead people to the conclusion that virtue is knowledge so if you know right. what the good is then bang, automatically do it right, so, right right yeah so why is if only <laughs> yeah but why is that not entailed by this account of natural freedom
1: um so doesn't saint augustine talk about that i think saint augustine uh, uh, who who is himself a platonist uh gives a uh, good answer there, right, in uh, his book on the free will. Uh, and it's because uh, we are not always, a, I think it's because our mind gets fixed on a lower good because, for instance, the senses are very immediate for us. Yeah. The senses are very yeah. immediate and very, uh, they can just present things to our to our uh, will uh, in an almost unmediated way, and then our will does its little... Uh, calculus, it's a little uh, syllogism, practical syllogism off that, yeah. and we we'll go ahead and act. Yeah. So, So Socrates isn't like simply speaking, I mean, he's not right, but he's not as wrong as you might think. Because at least for me, I've had the experience, unfortunately, of doing things I knew to be wrong. Right. Or I've also had the experience of like knowing what the right thing to do is and then finding myself doing something else. And that's what St. Augustine also talks about this, about how we, the will tries to direct itself and fails.
2: <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, Socrates does talk about this a bit in the Gorgias. Is it the Gorgias where he talks about how there's the problem of perspective, that things that are closer appear to be larger than things that are right. farther away, even if in reality they're smaller. And, I mean, Augustine, he talks about three ways in which that Um, can happen the one is the one that you raised uh, namely that um, the senses the sensible good are closer to us than uh, the intelligible good so we have say say someone commits adultery right this is an injustice it's contrary to the intelligible good of justice but it's sensible you know right? he's he's moved by the sensible passion which is closer to him than uh the knowledge of justice
1: and and a sign that 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 that's what's happening is uh so I won't use adultery as an example because that's – I always – I'm worried. I don't want – thank God. Thank God I, I've been spared that. But uh, like if gluttony, for yeah. instance, if you see the, the piece of cake and it looks so good and you're like, oh, this is what I really want, and you start eating it, and then you're done, and you're like, oh, I feel disgusting. Why did I eat that? That was such a bad idea. What was I thinking? Like as soon as the, the sense is satiated – So that you no longer have that desire, like, you're like, oh, you idiot. Why did you do that? (laughs) And so so many of our, so many of our faults, and I think probably including adultery, you know, the moment it's over, you're
2: like, oh, no, what have I done? I've ruined my life. (laughs) Blah, 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 (laughs) blah. Right. Right. But then Augustine also discusses another um, way in which this happens, which doesn't have to do with this contrast between the senses and reason but between the com- the private good and the common good. So the private good is closer to us, even if it's an intelligible good, than the common good. That is, it's closer to us, not in the sense that it's more good for us. The common good is more good for us than any private good. But in the sense that it's more easily knowable to us. It's closer to our power of knowing. And that's why you can also um, sin by turning away from the common good towards the private good even if you know in an intellectual way that the common good is better it's still the private good can still sort of move and that's the sin
1: of uh of pride more than anything else and that's also the sin of the uh of the the fallen angels which is uh uh, always scary (laughs) to hear because i mean it's so easy to prefer your private good to the common good But it's also demonic.
2: (laughs) Indeed. And what's the third one? The third one that Augustine talks about is um, turning to the exterior rather than the interior. Um, And what does that mean? He gives the example of curiosity there, where you you are turning towards the affairs of other people. Um, It... it, it's This is the most difficult one of the three, I think, to understand. Uh, but in a way, it has to do with what Pascal says uh, and what many people are experiencing now with the coronavirus thing. <coughs> that the problem of man is that he can't stay quiet in his own room. There's a way in which... Um, so the other things have to do with what's closer is easier to pursue as good. And this has to do... Is in a way the opposite? That is... Because there is disorder in your own soul, it's painful to turn inward and to pursue the inward good. And so then you distract yourself by turning outwards towards other things. So even though you know it's better for you to work on your own virtue than to go and complain about other people, it's easier to go complain (laughs) about other people (laughs) or inquire into their affairs oh no
1: <laughs> uh, coincidentally my ears are turning red oh no <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with this discussion um so uh so those are the three ways then and, and where are we in the text i'm just well, he, remember reading this this is,
2: this is in augustine this isn't in, in the bad test i thought but, he
1: didn't didn't he uh, talk about this i thought he referred to it very Oh, no, it's in St. Augustine. You're right.
2: The, well, this I, I quoted the Augustine passage in an you article. You quote it in
1: your paper. Right. Never mind. I have mind. an article
2: for the Josias about freedom. Well, actually, originally I wrote this article for a, a conference with the Iranian mullahs. Um, <laughs> but we subsequently published it on the Josias. It was very amusing. I gave this talk on freedom, and then afterwards uh, one of the mullahs said to me, when he was listening to me, I thought I was listening to a Muslim. <laughs> <laughs> and he meant it as a compliment, of course, but <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how to take that. <laughs> oh
1: wow, well uh, <laughs> um,
2: okay so uh, so what then is moral freedom? I think the easiest way to to understand moral freedom is um to look at. Moral unfreedom. Um, so, if you take an example, if someone is uh, if someone is is taking a hike in the woods, say, right, and he's or he's not taking a hike, he's walking from he's walking to with a, speci- a sp- specific goal in mind, right? He's making a pilgrimage right. to Mariotzel or whatever, and he wants to get there and he comes to a fork in the road and he doesn't know which way is the right way. Um, and he takes the wrong way guessing that it's the right way. This person has a kind of unfreedom even though he's free in his choice of which way to go. He's in a way unfree because um, if, to, to be free is really to move yourself and to move and what you really want is to be happy. So, if you're choosing something in error that is thinking it will make you happy when it's not going to make you happy, that's a kind of unfreedom. So moral freedom, um, Leo says, is uh, freedom from sin. That is, knowing what it will truly make you happy and being able to choose it. So then this would be the soul supported through
1: virtue and supported ultimately through grace.
2: Yes. And in so here in paragraph six, um, Leo says the following. This is uh, on page 54 in, in Peter Kwasniewski's Catholic Social Teaching Reader, which, by the way, we want to plug. It's an excellent collection of documents, and Libertas is included in it. So It's great. Yeah. Everyone should buy it. At the bottom of page 54 in paragraph six, he says... Um, He's he's actually quoting uh, Saint Thomas's commentary on the Gospel of John here. He says, uh, "When when therefore man is by nature rational, when therefore he acts according to reason, he acts of himself and according to his free will, and this is liberty. Whereas when he sins, he acts in opposition to reason, is moved by another, and is the victim of foreign misapprehensions." Therefore, whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. So acting according to reason here means acting according to right reason, that is, to the true knowledge of what is good, true knowledge of what will make you happy.
1: Right. And to have this be intelligible, both of these senses, it seems to me you have to have an idea of an objective truth and an objective good. And the idea that man has a nature which is determined not by himself, but is determined by God and by, by uh, uh, his his very form. So that to be free really means to be acting in accordance with your nature, to determine yourself in, in accordance with your nature. Whereas for, for a dog or something, it can't be free or unfree because it just is according to its nature. Right. It, the dog can't really understand the good as good. Um, right. Right. It doesn't make a choice, whereas we we make choices, uh, and these choices are free when we choose well, and we uh, do good things, and they're slavish when we uh, choose the bad. Which dialogue is it where Socrates talks about, this is one of those provocative statements he makes, the the tyrant of the city is the least free man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh... It's brilliant. I (laughs) loved it. Which is obviously like on like a literal level, that's not true, right? There's a sense in which that's just false because the tyrant's the guy who's jailing everybody else. He's doing whatever he wants. He has a sort of exterior freedom, which is very manifest and obvious and maybe even the, you know, an early sense of freedom. Uh, but what Socrates goes on to show is that he's not
2: free because his soul is, is uh, fettered. Yeah. So there's. Yeah, that's a good uh, another good distinction. So we've distinguished between natural and moral freedom, and those are both kinds of interior freedom. So, right. like in the in the song that we heard at the beginning, "Die Gedanken sind frei. The thoughts are free. That's a interior freedom that the guy has, even though he's locked up in a dungeon. Um, but then there's external freedom, which means no one is forcing you from the outside to do something contrary to will or preventing you from doing your will from the outside right
1: and and on that point I wanted to you know when I was listening to the song I was I was thinking I mean because it's also it's about two people who are are in, uh, in love I guess and I was thinking, uh, he's singing about how thoughts are free, and I was thinking, well, only really if you're virtuous. <laughs> if you're not, your thoughts aren't free at all, buddy.
2: <laughs> right. As anyone who's trying to pray knows, you, you try, sit down, you, you're trying to, to meditate on the mysteries of the faith or something, and then your thoughts go off to. <laughs> yeah,
1: and then like all, all, all three forms that St. Augustine talks to, but I mean, it's very evident with uh, the senses. Often, it's very difficult to get your mind to think about what it wants. Is if you if you're, you know, trying to fast and you pass a bakery and there's these beautiful cakes and pastries there, and all of a sudden your stomach's grumbling and then you're like oh, all I can think about is how hungry I am. <laughs> you can't direct your mind the way you want, or or anytime you have some bad habit, your mind isn't free. You need. You need uh, the support of habits, the support of virtue, and ultimately grace to really be able to direct your mind to the proper end. Uh, uh, And the other thing is the exterior sense of freedom is the sense that I think the law is primarily concerned with. Uh, And so if you look at even a classical source such as uh, The Digest. Let me see where I had it printed out somewhere. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Libertas is naturalis facultas eos quod cuique facere libet. Liberty is one's natural faculty to do what one pleases, and then it continues unless prohibited by force or right. V or iure,
2: being the Latin for force or right. Um, yeah, well, I would and I that's I would about distinguish. I mean, the law—that's what the law means by freedom. So in that sense, that's the kind of freedom that or liberty that the law is concerned with. But I think Leo argues that in fact, law, properly understood, is ordered to moral freedom. No, I think that that's is, right. I think that's law right. Law gives you, law helps you to to know what's good and, and also trains you, makes you more virtuous. So law is but like I, if you're to, to go back to the guy wandering in the woods example, law is like the helpful passerby who explains to you what the right way to go is.
1: So so how I would look at it is is law is an ex uh, I think Thomas says the virtues are interior. Law is an exterior rule. So law is like if you have a broken leg or something, law can be a cast that lets your interior set itself and so eventually you you in a sense don't need it in the same way. The the virtuous don't need law the same way the, the vicious do. But then law also, uh, because of our fallen nature, often all you're doing, you're not actually making the person virtuous. You're just preventing them from—first you're punishing them, and then you're preventing them from causing further mischief, as Leo notes at some point here.
2: Yeah. Well, Leo also talks about law um, as being also, in a way, interior. That is one kind of law, namely natural law. Since naturalized is promulgated in the interior, that is through reason. Um, right, but to really be free, even with natural law,
1: to really be free, wouldn't you need to be actually virtuous? Yes, yeah, of course. Because otherwise, you have the 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 penalty. You have the rod being uh, applied to you, but you're not you're not following it of yourself. You're a slave. In other words, you can't if
2: you can't conform to it, you're. You're going to be a slave. You're going to be in prison. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So he says in, in paragraph seven, um, such then being the condition of human liberty, namely being able to be misled by the false appearance of good. It is, it necessarily stands in need of light and strength to direct its actions to good and to restrain them from evil. Without this, the freedom of our will would be our ruin First of all, there must be law. That is a fixed rule of teaching what is to be done and what is to be left undone. That's very interesting that he immediately... So the first uh, nominal definition of law that he gives there is law as a kind of teaching.
1: Yeah. Uh, Law is the guide of man's actions. It turns him towards good by its rewards and deters him from evil by its punishments. Yeah.
2: It appeals... And only this is why only rational creatures can uh, can really be under law in the full sense, as he goes on to say.
1: And he also he ties law to reason right away. Uh, it's an ordinance of reason, uh, which means that he, he points out that if we were free uh, from the law, if we we didn't have uh if we were exempt from the law, it may it would mean we were exempt from reason itself. Right.
2: Yeah, so he says a little later in paragraph 7, reason prescribes to the will what it should seek after or shun with a view to the eventual attainment of man's last end for the sake of which all his actions ought to be performed. This ordination of reason is called law. And then he ties it Uh, very
1: quickly his next move almost is to talk about uh, the force of law which uh, consists in imposing obligations and granting of rights and that for this reason authority is the one and only foundation of all law the power of fixing duties and defining rights and of course this has been a theme in a sense where he's going with this has been a theme in some of his earlier encyclicals because what he's going to conclude is that the authority which imposes law is in fact god's authority so god is the fountainhead of all law exactly
2: yeah yeah this is um a mistake that certain newer theories of natural law make that they don't see this it's true that you can know the the uh that that is you can you can know that you're obligated by the natural law without having explicitly recognized its source in god that is even someone who said doesn't know that there's a God, they can still know that it's bad to murder, and that right. they know they're knowing there in a confused way that there's some authority obliging them without explicitly knowing what the authority is, but in reality, that obligation is coming to them from God, from their Creator.
1: Right, and it also is is so the legal positivism, which states that you know the state sets out the sovereign of the state sets out what law is. And the state is either some sort of social contract or just some sort of fact that people habitually obey the sovereign uh, is the ultimate source. You can't look beyond it. And so morality and law are two completely different things. whether a law is and whether a law are mortal or is moral, excuse me, uh, are just different questions. And you can see right away that Leo's view rejects this because for him, of course, the state having authority and being a source of law, has can't be a primary authority or a primary source of law, but has to be derivative, and has to hold the authority uh, from
2: God Himself. Yeah, exactly. which is of course the Christian view. Exactly, man can't um, impose obligations on other men unless they have <laughs> received the authority from a higher power to impose those obligations. So let's uh,
1: let's. What does he mean by liberalism then? That's sort of his view, and then he starts talking about uh, uh, the the varieties of liberalism you might almost say and
2: and condemning them all yeah yeah, we can go to that that bit now um, the already at the at the beginning of the encyclical when he's sort of setting out what he's what he wants to do in paragraph one he he gives a kind of apologetic um Aim of the encyclical, namely to defend the church against those who imagine that she's hostile to human liberty. So at the end of paragraph one, he says, um, In like manner, this great gift of nature has ever been and always will be deservingly cherished by the Catholic Church, for to her alone has been committed the charge of handing down to all ages the benefits purchased for us by Jesus Christ. Yet there are many who imagine that the church is hostile to human liberty, having a false and absurd notion as to what liberty is. Either they pervert the very idea of freedom or they extend it at their pleasure to many things in respect of which man cannot rightly be regarded as free. So that's sort of the purpose. And that. And then he he first gives uh, the, the correct notion of liberty, which we've sort of summarized briefly. And then he turns to this false and absurd notion Um, notion of liberty that the enemies of the church have uh, and it's on account of this false understanding that they accuse the church of being um, against liberty.
1: Right, and he does this in chapters 14 and then uh, in in paragraph 14 and then 15 I think is the one where he really uh, sets it out. In paragraph 14 he says it's the cry of Lucifer (laughs) that they're following (laughs) non servium and
2: then 15 we... Yeah, it, it, that, that text, um, the the it's always put in the mouth of Lucifer, but in the original context in the book of Jeremiah, it's actually the, the people of God who say that. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the prophet is, is, is reproaching them for their disobedience and their, their harlotry and so on. And he says, for a long time, you know, you've kicked against the goat and, and broken the, the yoke and said, I will not serve.
1: Uh, Leo does say, uh, follow. Uh, yeah, yeah, he uh, puts it in Lucifer's mouth. Yeah. R- yeah, rebellious cry.
2: <coughs> which, you know, fair enough. So here, it seems like in in those paragraphs, 14 and 15, he's giving you the. what I've called the, the hardcore lib- liberal position. Um, right. Which is basically that there is no objective order of the good, but that uh, man himself is the source of goodness. That is what he, good is, is not uh, the cause of man's desiring it, but it's man's desire which makes it good.
1: Right. Uh, so, so he says, uh, I mean, it's, it's worth maybe quoting a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what ra- naturalists or rationalists aim at in philosophy uh, that the supporters of liberalism carrying out the principles laid down by naturalism are tempting in the domain of morality and politics. The fundamental doctrine of rationalism is the supremacy of the human reason, which, refusing due submission to the divine and eternal reason, proclaims its own independence and constitutes itself the supreme principle and source and judge of truth. Hence, those followers of liberalism deny the existence of any divine authority to which obedience is due and proclaim that every man is the law to himself from which arises that ethical system which they style, independent morality, which under the guise of liberty, exonerates man from any obedience to the commands of God and substitutes a boundless license. Right. So this, and I mean, this connects very much. This is a theme that he's explored in earlier encyclicals as well, which is that uh, uh, authority comes from, in, in, in this view, comes from below rather than authority coming down from on high, from God himself. Right, right. And also, I mean it's 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 in a way in a sense it's an old error. It's uh I'm trying to remember which pre Socratic uh it was that thought man was the measure of all things. Protagoras, uh, isn't it? Protagoras, that's right. Uh, he's sort of uh they take that to, to new extremes.
2: Uh and uh Yeah, I mean all the sophists uh basically have this idea that um what justice is is just convention, really, and it's it's man right. is the source of, of good and evil. It's <laughs> what, what do so Hobbs is, good.
1: <laughs> yeah, Hobbes uh, defines liberty in chapter twenty-one of the Leviathan uh, as uh, the absence of opposition. By opposition, I mean external impediments of motion and may it be applied no less to irrational and inanimate creatures than to rational. And I think that's kind of telling because Hobbes obviously also uh, puts boundless desire as the end. So there's, uh, uh, rather than having an objective truth, it's really all about your own power. Right. And then liberty ends up being, it's not something that's particular to man, it's just a sort of uh, external Uh, exterior liberty
2: right good is just the object of of passion he says right um this is quoting again from leviathan because hobbes is such a beautiful uh, although hobbes is himself (laughs) not a liberal uh in the strict sense he's he's definitely sort of the progenitor of liberals (laughs) the proto-liberal about his his own political philosophy is uh, because it's so totalitarian, you, you wouldn't call it liberal. <laughs> but this is Hobbes's definition of the good, which I think is really then the root of. Well, I mean the the reason why he defines liberty as as purely external, I think has has two roots, and one is that he has basically materialist anthropology. So there, and everything's determined. Man is basically a clockwork mechanism. Um, And so there's no natural liberty. There's no freedom of the will. In contrast to some of the other moderns, like Descartes, who's also in another way important for the liberal tradition. But the other is his account of the good. So this is what Hobbes says about the good. But whatsoever is the object of any man's appetite or desire, that is it which he for his part calleth good, and the object of his hate and aversion evil. So there the good there's there's no objective order of good, but it's just that certain things happen to give pleasure to this clockwork mechanism man, and those are the things that he calls good
1: so if if Hobbes is sort of a progenitor, a inspiration for the liberals, so they're not a liberal himself, who are the first uh, really sort of influential liberals
2: well um, the the word liberalism only becomes really popular in the 19th century. Um, but they, the, the 19th century liberals, they look back to, uh, to Locke, um, and to, uh, some of the French, um, enlightenment thinkers, uh, at the time of, uh, at the time of the revolution. Um, and, uh, basically take over these these Enlightenment ideals, uh, but develop them into sort of a concrete political, uh, political program.
1: Right. And, like, they look to Locke in particular. Like, one of the big things, then, is that the uh, authority has no divine right. Rather, authority is just a sort of social contract. Mm-hmm. They take that to mean uh, people should be... So the idea of government goes from being... Government exists, uh, it's ordin, uh, you know, authority comes from on high. Government and society exist to teach men to be good and to allow them to be virtuous, uh, so you can be virtuous in a political community. Uh, it comes from that to being government is too uh, limited and it's to keep people from harming each other, and people can determine for themselves what the good is.
2: Right right and it th- <laughs> yeah and there's the idea that this will uh this will in fact um cause a, a flourishing of i mean the a flourishing of civilization um so constant the the french uh political writer is is one of the big figures in early 19th century liberalism and his idea basically is that this is the best way to have uh, to develop society, to make a culture, so there, there's, he has this kind of constant, and, and you'll see this also in later liberals like John Stuart Mill. Um, they have this idea that the human good is not uh, it's not a fixed eternal ideal, but it 's something that has to be sort of developed through the progress of civilization. So everything's about progress, and letting everyone sort of do their own thing and um, discover their own values, uh, as we would say today, (laughs) is going to contribute (laughs) to the progress of civilization. Right. So you see, again,
1: uh, uh, the old view depends on a view of objective truth and an objective good, whereas the new view, uh, if you're going to be thoroughgoing about it, Truth and good are subjective, so you end up making, uh, you, you end up making yourself. What do you want to be? And uh, whatever you think is good, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt others too much, go ahead and do it. Yeah,
2: and in in the my paper that we already referred to, um, the one that I gave for the Iranian mullahs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, wasn't it recently collected somewhere yeah yeah uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this amused me no end it was published because I, I gave this paper at a conference um that was uh sponsored by the Institut for religion und Frieden, the institute for religion and peace which is a, a think tank that's run by the austrian military chaplaincy And so the papers at this conference, including mine on freedom, were published um, in an official publication of the Institute for Religion and Freedom (laughs) at the publishing press uh, of the Austrian uh, Republic. So it says on the back cover of this (laughs) volume, uh, official publication of the Republic of Austria, federal minister for the defense of the land. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, but what I was going to say is, in that paper, I talk about um, something that Leo XIII doesn't talk about because it develops more after his time, namely the, the kind of rationalist liberalism that comes from people like uh, Locke and, and Constant and, uh, that finally goes back to uh, to Descartes' account of the will. Um, that gets sort of modified but modified in a way that really intensifies the liberalism of it um, by the romantic reaction against rationalism, which sees um, human freedom as having kind of a... There's, there's sort of this inchoate uh, f- vitality or force within the human being Um this sort of current of life underlying all things that expresses itself that sort of has to find expression and so then there's this idea of freedom as as giving room to human beings to find expression for this sort of current of life and Mm -hmm. this here desire again it's not it's not motivated by an objective good it's not elicited by the goodness of things but it's sort of a finding of oneself, an expression of oneself, and then authenticity becomes sort of this really governing value. And in the 20th century, um, there's a, a particularly fixation on sexual passion because sexual passion, in a way, is since it's so strong um, and ecstatic, it's very suggestive of this sort of romantic current of life. And so the the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Um, is I think key here. Charles Taylor has a, has a, a very insightful book, a uh, kind of uh, shocking book called "The Ethics of Authenticity," where he talks about That's this. Great. What's shocking about it is is, the, is how how uh, favorable he is to this absolutely insane view that he's describing. It's like, oh, this <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Like what? <laughs> but uh, and he he really describes it
1: like. Uh if I if I recall it's been a few years, but yeah. if I recall correctly, he really describes it. It's not the way he describes it sets you up to think, Oh, he's gonna condemn right, this right, now.
2: Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but he's like, Yeah, hey, we can't really totally condemn this. This this clearly has such a, a hold on us that we have to in some right. way <laughs> it's a very strange right, conclusion. Right. Yeah,
1: it's it's he's almost like he's he's almost like you sometimes hear alcoholics or, or drug users talk this way well, you know, maybe there's all these problems with using heroin, but, you know,
2: I have to have heroin. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, and I think this, here you see um, how contemporary liberalism, although so-called classical liberalisms are always complaining about how contemporary liberalisms not really liberal, they're illiberals, they're totalitarians, you know, the social justice warriors and and thought police and so on are are very illiberal because they're trying to, you know, curtail the freedom of the 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 nice classical liberals but this shows that really there's a deep continuity there from classical liberalism to the the kind of social justice warriors of the present that is the social (laughs) justice warriors of our day they're trying to um defend this freedom of expression the freedom of each person to be their authentic self to sort of uh let that sort of current of life within them come to expression. And I think that the transsexual movement in our time is a very clear example of this, where you're seeing that uh, freedom sort of is, is fully realized in, in this expression of the authentic self, which is not tied to an, to an objective order of nature, but it sort of uh, constitutes its own. Good by expressing these uh, deep desi- and ecstatic desires.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is something also that McIntyre talks about. Uh, but uh, the, yeah, this is a little post-post
2: Leo. Yeah, let's um, go, get back to the text.
1: <laughs> he uh, he goes through and he talks about. The, so it's always seemed to me that there's not just one. Even the classical liberals, there's not just really one liberalism. There's a bunch of different sorts of. Right liberalism and people aren't always consistent some people are liberal in one area and not in another so but he sort of goes through a bunch of their 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 greatest hits as it were and, and sets them up and knocks them down yeah. uh so maybe we can say a little bit about some of them like i think yes. he so
2: in 17 in paragraph 17 he starts talking to talking about a more moderate branch of liberalism sort of soft right. core liberals um And this, so the, in, in 17, he's, he talks about ones who think that there is a certain, um, so man is not really uh, the measure of all things. He, he has to follow natural law, um, but we should only, we should only follow, um, we should only follow the law that is revealed in to natural reason, that is the revealed uh revelation should have no part in informing um, society. We should have a purely natural approach. So these are sort of the the, uh, certain Catholic liberals as well of our own time who think this. And then in 18, he goes on to say, there are others somewhat more moderate, though not more consistent, who affirm that the morality of individuals is to be good, is is to be guided by the divine law, but not the morality of the state. For that in public affairs, the commands of God may be passed over and may be entirely disregarded in the framing of laws. Hence follows the fatal theory of the need of separation between church and state. So these would be liberals, (laughs) say Catholic liberals, who think, yeah, as an individual, you have to follow um, the law of God, both as revealed uh, through natural reason and as taught authoritatively by the uh, sacred scripture and holy tradition and the uh, magisterium of the church. But when it comes to society at the society level, there you can't, you know, form laws based on, on the law of God there. You've got to, you know, form it on based on social consensus and you need to separate church and state.
1: Right. And the state can, you know, do natural things, but it can't, can't even acknowledge
2: any supernatural yeah, This is David Frenchism in a way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, he may be a little more
2: thoroughgoing even than that. That may too. Yeah, he might be <laughs> not quite so moderate. He's a little bit even more liberal. Uh, and then he sort of goes through the sort of
1: particulars uh, so such as I think he starts with uh, liberty of worship. Uh, so those are sort of what we summed up are sort of you can, uh, you can have thoroughgoing liberalism or more moderate liberalism where you, you, right. you, you acknowledge some of the tenets of natural law, but you don't want to make it—you uh, you don't acknowledge them either as the state or you don't acknowledge the uh, commands of God as uh, the church— uh, but then there's like liberty of worship, which is everybody should just be free to profess any chosen religion or none.
2: Right. So it follows from from these all of these liberals, whether we're talking about the hardcore liberals who really think there's no objective good or the soft core liberals who think, well, there's an objective good, but it's irrelevant to politics. Um, they all make these demands of specific liberties. Liberty of speech, right. liberty of education, liberty of religion, especially, and liberty of religion is kind of the most important because it has most to do with the first principle of all practical life, which is the final end.
0: Right,
1: right, and and this these sections are, uh, I mean, it's it's such a forgotten teaching, but you read this and like, you know, if you're going to stay Catholic. <laughs> You have to be an integralist, I'm sorry exactly yeah. <laughs> that's all there is to it <laughs> uh but nobody I, I I don't know what people do they, I guess they just don't read it or they think, yeah, that was true then, but we've we've progressed now after Vatican II or whatever right.
2: there's been a development of doctrine by which they mean the <laughs> contradiction of the old doctrine
1: <laughs> look at first, it was white. Then it was gray. Now it's black. It developed. What do you want? <laughs> right. Uh, so, do we want to talk about some of these particularly? Or I thought the the section on liberty of conscience was particularly kind of interesting. Yeah.
2: Also, the one on liberty uh, of speech, I thought was really.
1: Yeah, nice. maybe let's do let's do liberty of speech first because liberty of conscience is uh, is sort of a pivot it's point sort of where he talks one, yeah. about. Yeah, and he talks about – he starts talking about liberty in a positive way again to show that the church is, in fact, the font of
2: true liberty. Uh, Yeah. So liberty of speech. And it's interesting here. Note – I'm going to quote a a passage from here, but note the use of the word right here. uh, If we think back to our episode on right, um, he's using right here in the sense of a moral power which, as we said, is is an extension of the word right. The first meaning of right is the object of justice, that is the thing owed to another. Which which paragraph are you in? This is paragraph 23. 23, But here he's using it in an analogous sense, meaning um, the moral power, that because someone else owes you something, you have, as it were, a moral power over that. Do you happen to know what the Latin he uses there is? I didn't. Uh, I forgot to bring the Latin, but let me maybe have it here on the computer one sec.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll read the quote. He says, "...for right is a moral power which, as we have said before, again, and must say, again, and again repeat, it is absurd to suppose that nature has accorded indifferently to truth and falsehood, to justice and injustice. Men have a right freely and prudently to propagate throughout the state whatever things are true and honorable, so that so many as possible may possess them, but lying opinions..." then which no mental plague is greater, and vices which corrupt the heart and moral life should be diligently repressed by public authority, lest they insidiously work the ruin of the state. Oh, beautiful.
2: <laughs> yes, I have it here. Est enim facultas moralis, quamut diximus sepiusque est dicendum, and so on. So ius facultas moralis, right is a moral faculty.
1: Interesting. Uh, so here he really takes on one of the big things that, that people care about today, freedom of speech, right. and it's sort of the right and the left, although I guess more the right these days, I'd say, uh, always talks about freedom of speech, right. uh, but he's going to do them one better and he's going to say, no, <laughs> only only uh, freedom of truth, really, right, in accordance with prudence. Right.
2: Right, uh, yeah, in accordance with prudence, right? At the end, he's going to give a kind of thesis hypothesis uh, teaching where right. uh, one can tolerate bad speech if um, not tolerating it would, you know, be, uh, lead to the overthrow of the state.
1: Right, right, right. And he does He does also say in, in matters that are— uh, that have been left free for men's discussion, you know, discuss away. But otherwise, uh, the truth will end up being obscured by license. Right. And liberty will be ever more, uh, and then, uh, license will gain what liberty loses. Whereas liberty will be ever more free as license is kept in fuller restraint. I think you see that today. I mean, uh, The idea that any and all speech, pretty much, unless it directly incites violence, has to be free, is... uh, I don't even think in the 19th century that was very common. I think that was... Well, maybe it was, but but certainly it's more common and more prevalent now than it was, say, in the 18th and 19th century.
2: Right. Because, uh, I mean... You, you have the premises are kind of worked out ever more consistently as liberalism go, goes on. So John Stuart Mill says the only thing that can justify the state exercising power on someone is the prevention of harm to others. But um, back in Mill's time, a lot of things would have been considered harm, which now people are like yeah. <laughs> You know? yeah. Well, it's also, it's
1: coming back somewhat. So, so what the, the snowflakes, uh, actually rightly see, I, and you know, here I agree with them. They see that speech can itself cause harm. Right. So that's why there's all these trigger warnings and hate speech right, has gone. Right. And, and, and according to certain people is, you know, an ever growing circle, so you see, even people who are good progressives are always living in fear of something they said yesterday, being oh no, now that's no longer true. I, I have to I have to update all and you know apologize et cetera. Uh, and there's something obviously totalitarian and horrible about all that. But it's also uh, you know I would agree speech can be harmful. Yeah, speech is yeah. not what's this neutral it,
2: thing. What's horrible about it is that it's directed at the wrong speech, not that it 's limiting speech what right? I mean, 's <laughs> horrible about it is that, you know' they 're going after people who are defending nature against the madness of the transsexuals rather than going after the transsexuals. <laughs> yeah.
1: uh. If if only it were still just transsexuals, Uh, (laughs) transgenders now. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, uh, other things, other kins, right? Right. So people who don't (laughs) even think they're people. (laughs) Right. Ah, the
2: podcast gets canceled. Um, (laughs) Yet, Let me quote something from a little bit further along where he talks about how um, the per se falsehood and and, uh, evil speech doesn't have any um, right to protection. Nevertheless, you don't have to be uh, too draconian about it. This is the, the thesis hypothesis distinction, basically, though he doesn't use that language here. In paragraph 33, Yet with the discernment of a true mother, the church weighs the great burden of human weakness and well knows the course down which the minds and actions of men are in this our age being born. For this reason, while not conceding any right to anything save what is true and honest, she does not forbid public authority to tolerate what is at variance with truth and justice for the sake of avoiding some greater evil or of obtaining or preserving some greater good. God himself in his providence though infinitely good and powerful, permits evil to exist in the world, partly that greater good may not be impeded, and partly that greater evil may not ensue. In the government of states, it is not forbidden to imitate the ruler of the the world, and as the authority of man is powerless to prevent every evil, it has, as St. Augustine says, to overlook and leave unpunished many things which are punished and rightly by divine providence." But if, in such circumstances, for the sake of the common good, and this is the only legitimate reason, human law may or even should tolerate evil, it may not and should not approve or desire evil for its own sake, for evil of itself being a privation of good is opposed to the common welfare, which every legislator is bound to desire and to defend to the best of his ability."
1: Right. And so so before he gets there, though, can we go quickly Mm -hmm. through the the conscience stuff? Because I thought this was like really some of the most fascinating passages in this whole thing. He starts here as opposed to most of the other ones uh, where he's going through the particular ones. He starts here talking. uh, He says, you know, it might mean everyone may worship God or not as he chooses. And he says, we've already refuted this, basically. Uh, But he says, But it may also be taken to mean that every man in the state may follow the will of God and, from a consciousness of duty and free from every obstacle, obey his commands. This is indeed, this indeed is true liberty, a liberty worthy of the sons of God. And he goes on, This is the kind of liberty the apostles claimed for themselves with intrepid constancy which the apologists of Christianity confirm by their writings in which the martyrs in vast numbers consecrated by their blood. So here he's talking about liberty of conscience, which is a true freedom because we are always free or always should be free to obey God and to follow his will. Uh, And then, so in a move that I find very interesting because, uh, you know, liberalism makes the state into a social contract. So state is no longer... Uh, an authority coming from above, but is the consent in some way right. of the people, or at least at least the habit of obedience of the people. Uh, uh, the patrons of liberalism in 31, however, who make the state absolute and omnipotent and proclaim that men should live altogether independently of God, the liberty of which we speak, which goes hand in hand with virtue and religion, i.e. the good liberty of conscience, is not admitted. And whatever... Uh, I'm sorry. And whatever is done for its preservation is accounted an in injury and an offense against the state. So th- this is like the one liberty they can't abide. <laughs>
2: right.
1: <laughs> Which I think is interesting, and it's also uh, at least experientially, it seems to have been borne out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's the the. Um, liberty of conscience in this sense, the libertas ecclesia, the liberty of the church, this is founded on the recognition of a higher authority than the state, and an authority that is not derived from the consent of the governed, but that is uh, <laughs> imposed on us by our right. nature as creatures.
1: Right. Right, right. And it's it's also funny, because I think it is true, the people who who I think I think Hobbes is not a liberal but I think liberalism has a way in which it tends towards totalitarianism. Yeah. Uh so liberalism starts up to, you know, protect the state, protect individuals because you know rights everything flows from the individual. But in the end it does end up making the state omnipotent because there's no real check on authority other than what people will permit or people will tolerate. Right. But of course, if the, if that's the only check, that's not enough.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you see that, again, to come back to our own lamentable times um, in things like with the state uh, providing for things that are clearly absurd and contrary to nature, like gay marriage, for example, um, <laughs> <laughs> abortion. Uh <laughs> sex right. change all these things <laughs> right right, right.
1: Um, and, and you see it in the logic of the progressives well, again there, that's the totalitarian in,
2: in the US that defined uh, pi as like, 3.3 or something stupid <laughs> <laughs> sounds... And all these bridges started falling down because it's just contrary to reality. <laughs> I I hadn't heard about that,
1: but it it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but that's the sort of totalitarian side of of liberalism that the progressives end up uh, embracing, yeah. and and in their way the the conservatives do too, although on on different subjects. I would say it's more more of the progressives. Right. Uh, so then. Uh-huh. Uh, He also talks about sort of what I take to be the Protestant view. Is is that right? And uh, uh, he talks about he he goes back and sort of uh, talks about another sort of liberalism, which is that yeah, all this is true, but the authority of the church is only to exhort. The church isn't a perfect society, Mm -hmm. so these are all themes we've talked about before. But maybe you could say a little bit about that.
2: So you're thinking of of paragraph 40? Yeah, I think so. Let me... uh, So he says, Others oppose not the existence of the Church, nor indeed could they, yet they despoil her of the nature and rights of a perfect society and maintain that it does not belong to her to legislate, to judge, or to punish, but only to exhort, to advise, and to rule her subjects in accordance with their own consent and will. By such opinion, right. they pervert the nature of this divine society and attenuate and narrow its authority, its office of teacher, and its whole efficiency. And at the same time, they aggrandize the power of the civil government to such extent as to subject the church to the empire and sway of the state like any voluntary association of citizens. Yeah. Yeah, so this is this, in a way follows from the separation of the, of church and state that the church then is no longer seen as being the church, as being a necessary society with um, real authority over her subjects and is degraded to uh, a voluntary society based on the consent of uh, her members. Um, and this we see uh, basically everywhere in the state, in, in in modern society, and not just among non-Catholics, but even Catholics think this way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, I, I was reading uh, uh, an introduction to Catholic social teaching. I've been reading a couple different ones because I'm planning a book on Catholic social teaching, so I want to see. So, what, what's the standard approach is? So I can totally depart from it in every way. <laughs> 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 but um, the the even just the table of contents was absurd. It talks about the state, and then it talks about intermediate associations, the church the university, and the family. I'm like, what? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well-meaning uh, teacher of Catholic social teaching. The church is not an intermediate association. <laughs> I like how the, uh, the university is also in there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that
1: timeless, natural institution, the university. <laughs>
2: exactly, yeah, yeah yeah so the university we distinguish between um, when we're talking about different kinds of society and we we went into this a little bit when we were talking about in our episode on the Joker um, (laughs) (laughs) we distinguish between um, first between artistic or productive societies and prudential societies an artistic or productive society would be a society that is ordered to um, some production of humans. So, for example, uh, a company that makes desks and chairs um, or a football club, which makes, in in an analogous sense, football games. Right? They're, they're not concerned with the end of human life as such, but with some product of human activity. And prudential societies. Prudential societies mean societies that are ordered to the object of the virtue of prudence, um, that is societies that are ordered to the end of human life um, I mean, prudence is, is concerned mostly with the means but with the means towards that final end of human life um, and so these would be societies uh, like the the polis or the church that is a perfect society a society that's concerned with a perfect end and this, the other distinction we make is between necessary and voluntary societies and uh, the church and um, the temporal society, civil society, and the family are all examples of necessary societies. They're not something that uh, is like a university is the the product of a voluntary decision of the members to enter into this society. You, but uh, you don't have a choice about whether to be part of Civil society or the family, or not. And with the church, you have an initial choice when you accept baptism. But once you're baptized, then you're committed. There's no, you can't uh, withdraw from that. You're subject to the church forever then. Much like the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> Much like the mafia, except the mafia is. Uh, well, that's why the mafia is, I mean, the, there's level. actually. It's really ordered there's... to the. <laughs>
1: Right. Well, there's you know uh, very interesting papal writings on the mafia itself because you know it's in Italy, so it's uh, for many reasons uh, on on the mind of the popes at various times, and they talk about how it's an anti society and an anti uh, uh, and how
2: it's so poisonous to society as a whole. My, my brother uh, Benedict lived in in Bari in Apulia for three years or, or more. Um, and there's where is that in, in southern Italy in in Puglia, oh, okay. um, and they have the indranga in there the the um, that's a version of the mafia, um, and he he claimed I don't know if this is true, um, but <laughs> his claim was that in its origin it was an anti-revolutionary movement, that is it, it had its origin in. Um, the time of the Napoleonic Wars when the French were uh, promoting their Enlightenment ideals of liberty, equality, and fraternity through the sword throughout Europe. And, you know, you had a a kind of mini-French revolution in the Kingdom of Naples, um, even before Napoleon. And then Napoleon sort of imposed these Enlightenment ideals on everyone. And his claim was that the mafia, and and particularly the Andrangheta, started out as a counter-revolutionary society, which was resisting this Enlightenment ideal. But then it later, oh, later on just turned and morphed into kind of uh, <laughs> criminal association. <laughs> uh, that's too funny.
1: Um, so that's all I had. Uh, do you have any, any closing wisdom for us? Um,
2: the the it, It's maybe interesting to look at the very end of the encyclical where he... Goes back to his original apologetic purpose, um, where he talks about how the church is is not uh, opposed to the freedom of nations even. So he's he's his predecessor was of course you know, d- despoiled of his uh, of the papal states by the Italian Risorgimento, and so there's this very strong. Uh, Idea that you know the church is opposed to to the freedom of the Italian nation and so on, um, and of course it was opposed to the Risorgimento. But he says it's not because it's opposed to the freedom of of nations or of cities as such. Um, in, in paragraph forty six, the second to last paragraph, he says neither does the church condemn those who, if it can be done without violation of justice, wish to make their country independent of any foreign or despotic power. Nor does she blame those who wish to assign to the state the power of self-government and to its citizens the greatest possible measure of prosperity. The church has always most faithfully fostered civil liberty, and this was seen especially in Italy, in the municipal prosperity and wealth and glory which were obtained at a time when the salutary power of the church had spread without opposition to all parts of the state. So um, that's kind of a parting shot, um, he, th- and it's typical of Leo that he, although as we saw he has some very harsh polemic against the liberals, he's always trying to find because he is convinced that the proper object of the will is the good, so that everyone is trying to achieve some good. He's trying to look, what is the good that these people even, you know, the evil risorgimento nationalists <laughs> who who destroyed the papal states. You know, Leo the Thirteenth was born in, in the papal states and raised in them uh, and so he he's very his he uh, very deep personal ties uh and you know had deep affection for blessed Pius the ninth and so on so it's not that he has any uh, he has any uh, um, personal sympathy for the Risorgimento, but he's he wants to see what was the good that they were trying to uh that they were in a in a bad and unjust way trying to pursue and then say look the church isn't opposed to anything that's really good uh and um yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. You're reading right now a, a biography of him in Germany? Yeah, I finished it. It's the first It's the first major biography of him that's come out in a long time. It's by Jörg Ernesti, who's a um, Tyrolean uh, church historian. He was teaching the, bricks, and now he's in Germany, though. Um, and it's it's very interesting. It's very well-researched. Uh, it, there's some misunderstandings in it. And Ernesti, he, his, his real passion is St. Paul. Uh, St. Paul VI, he wrote a biography of Paul VI, um, who he sees as kind of the beau ideal of a pope, this sort of international di- <laughs> the pope is, you know, Paul VI at the UN uh, saying, never again war, this is sort of the beau ideal of the pope for him. So he has this. Or, ten- or
1: Paul VI sitting in the Vatican horrified at what's happening
2: and <laughs> 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 yeah, not so much that fasting and praying. But you, you know Cardinal Sodano's <laughs> sermon at the before the conclave the elected uh Benedict the Sixteenth? That that's the sort of the Vatican establishment view of the sort of the Vatican diplomatic establishment view. That's Ernestes view. And so he has this tendency to misinterpret some of Leo the things and to, to sort of see them as um he wants to see everything as kind of uh, uh, a development towards the ideal. <laughs> see, oh, look, he's anticipating Vatican II here. Well, <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs> if you understand Vatican II rightly. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating book. So I hope it gets translated into English.
1: Yes, I do, too. I'd love to read it. Um well, thank you so much. This was another great episode. Oh, and I should probably say: is uh, if you've made it this far into the episode, uh, subscribe to our podcast, uh, like, share. We are also on Patreon, and
2: uh, yeah, many thanks to our Patreon supporters. Many, many thanks to, to all of you all supporters. Data.
1: Yeah. Yes, and it, you know, it helps not just the podcast but the website as a whole. We're able to do more than we would other otherwise, and hopefully, we have more things in the works. And with that, thank you so much. It's been great. All right,
0: so oh, nice. <laughs> Die Gedanken sind nur vergebliche Wärme. meine Gedanken zerreißen Distanzen und bauen zwei, die Gedanken sind frei. Die Gedanken sind frei.